I'm going to use today uh, to actually cover some introductory material. We will uh, use most of the 50 minutes. Uh, the last part of uh, today's lecture will describe the course, its requirements, uh, and so forth. So let's begin. Capitalism. We're going to break the subject today into three headings. Capital, capitalism, and course. Three C's, if you will. The I've chosen, and, and I usually do this, I've chosen uh, one segment of the economy as the theme for the day. Uh, and today, that segment is revealed in this slide. Um, Calhoun Athletics XXL, can you interpret the slide? Okay, what, what in particular? Okay. Uh, how about Varick bottled water? Okay, they are indeed crop circles. Uh, score one for MBAs. Uh, they are crop circles, and all of us who travel uh, from uh, east to west across the country uh, have seen them. But we haven't seen them quite in this density because this photograph is taken from space. It's a NASA image. And it, uh, it's an extraordinarily elegant uh, display of something very simple. Now, why would center pivot agriculture interest us from the point of view of capitalism? The misformatted slide here says capital. Uh, this is a definition that comes uh, down to us through the Oxford Eng English Dictionary from the early 17th century. And uh, let me read it in full, and then we'll boil it down to more manageable terms. Capital is the accumulated wealth of an individual, company, or community used as a fund to carry on fresh production. Wealth in any form used to help in producing more wealth. And there's a shift between those two meanings. The first is a very broad understanding of capital. The second is very close to the way you would have to think about capital in connection with an economic system called capitalism. So let's start with the broader usage. Uh, capital is accumulated wealth used as a fund in carrying on fresh production. That's uh, a very broad idea. It is one which um, arguably, in fact, I think without much argument, uh, goes back 10,000 years to the establishment of agricultural society and very possibly another 100, 120,000 years to organized hunter-gatherers using weapons and tools. Does this qualify? Is that not capital? What do you think? Second row, purple. It is capital. Sorry, excuse me. Can you handle this? Hi. 
think can be used as capital because it's sort of kind of like accumulated wealth and you can use nuts for many okay, so the, the nuts buried in the forest floor are accumulated wealth. So mm. it meets that test. Does it meet the next test? You need the mic a little closer to your mouth. Well, it doesn't really pr um, have any fresh productions. Okay, so what, what, what is this squirrel producing with that nut? Nothing immaterial. Okay, he's producing squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's not really what we mean. Okay. Uh, hand the mic to somebody else and we'll just, it's the hot potato. Or just pass it around and wherever it is when I ask a question, that's your turn. <laughs> yeah, that'll be good. Uh, the nest is producing nestlings. Uh, and it's a little closer to what we mean. Beaver dam, producing a working environment for beavers to carry out their business. It's closer. Infrastructure, if you will. The honeycomb that bees use. Uh, this one is actually the one that is closest intuitively to capital, right? The accumulated wealth is the energy and silk required to weave the nest, or weave the uh, web. And the web is indeed an instrument uh, for the work of capturing prey, but there's no external product beyond it. So even that is not quite what we have in mind. Now how about seed? The seeds used in agriculture. Where's the, uh, where's the mic right now? Still here. Pass out. Come on in, guys. No, 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 you're not passing it off now. Okay, so do you reckon that seeds like this constitute capital? Um, Hold the mic really close. Okay. Uh, I I don't really think so, no. Okay, and why not? Um, well, I guess that a seed produces a plant, but um, it doesn't really, well, I guess, yeah, maybe the seed produces a plant, and then the plant produces more seeds, and it sort of keeps generating more and more seeds, so. Is that capital? Um, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like it to me. Okay, and why not? Be, be exactly. Well, I, th I, you know, I guess that capital is sort of a, um, a never-ending way of accumulating more wealth. Does that go on forever? Um, I so think so. Yeah. Fail? Yeah, capitalists fail, but good capitalists don't. Take more. <laughs> <laughs> Take more. It's a pretty good example. Yeah. It's a really good example. Uh, okay, Mike, please. Uh, in this bucket, I've got. Anybody uh, say that there's that it isn't enough to count as capital? Is if if is one seed does that enough to make it capital? It's. I said, what kind of seed is okay, it? <laughs> it is, uh, for growing safflower. If, if you ex 
elicit information from me. You gotta give me something back. Oh, okay. I, th I think seeds in any quantity can be capital because each, once you plant it and it, there isn't like, you know, successful pollination and everything is it, like that. Is the poor slob bacteria? Um, you can always use the plants to produce more seed. In fact, that's what a lot of farms do, and that's what a lot of farms get in trouble for because other companies want to control those seeds. Okay, so there's a patent. Patent violation issue if I use hybrid seed to generate more hybrid seed. There may be. There's an argument there. Okay, so quantity doesn't matter at all? Yes. I would say quantity matters if you're a subsistence farmer because if you just have enough seed to feed yourself, that's not capital, that's just keeping you alive. You aren't producing any further wealth okay. from it. And if I gave you just this much seed? Uh, well, if I'm not a farmer, if I have some other means of supporting myself, that could be capital for a side business, but that wouldn't be for a subsistence farmer. I think it's really worth having a business over 26 sunflower seeds. Well, no. No, I don't think so either. Uh, and what I'm driving at here is the notion of minimum efficient scale. Capital gets, a resource gets to be capital only when it's aggregated to a scale where it can be effect, effectively enough deployed to compete in an actual economy. Now let's take, that's too big a note, let's take a dollar. Um, have I just given you capital or not? Technically, yes, but probably that wouldn't allow me to uh, set up a budding business over here. Okay. How might it become a piece of capital? Well, if somebody else gives me a dollar or more. Two dollars is enough for you to call it capital? <laughs> no, but um, if, if I have more investors and they will be giving more than a dollar, Okay, so you need some aggregation or agglomeration. And how, do, how, does, how do we aggregate capital in an actual economy? IPOs. IPOs are a big way to do it. Uh, the, and in general, the joint stock corporation is a way to do it. How do banks aggregate capital? Deposits. Okay. Thousands of little deposits make big funds. Okay, so we're getting there with capital. And what I want to do now is uh, continue the agricultural theme and uh, see if we can relate what we're talking about to the generation of actual wealth in society. Uh, this is called a seed drill. And it is a way of planting millions of seeds in a very systematic, precise, and cost-effective way. And one characteristic feature of how capital works is combining different factors in the production of the same thing in an extremely intelligent way, a way that represents the accumulated experience uh, of society. And when you do it well, uh, you succeed, and when you do it poorly, you fail. You can actually fail even when you do it well, but you're very unlikely to succeed when you do it poorly. Now here, I want to compare two, uh, two very similar technologies. This is uh, 
peasant farming uh, in Tibet. Uh, and the motive power here is a pair of yaks. And this is a John Deere tractor. And the spectacular difference between these two things is obvious to us all. It is that one of them is, constitutes a large investment of capital. Uh, in the case of that tractor and the gear with it, well over $100,000 must be invested. Uh, the yaks, well, I don't know what yaks cost in Tibet, but less. And we would say that the John Deere photograph represents something that's capital intensive and the yak photograph represents something which is, excuse me, labor intensive. And we would expect a much higher return in, pro, in, in food, food uh, generated per hour of labor invested from the highly mechanized capital intensive story. And the history of the world in the last thousand years is essentially the history of substitution for of the right hand picture for the left hand, of capital intensive, highly mechanized means of production in the place of labor intensive, low capitalization uh, means of production. Another comparison. Excuse me. Uh, the capital intensivity here, the ratio of that watering can's capital cost to the center pivot that might be as much as 500 meters long would be uh, measured in the thousands to one, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands probably. Enormous difference in the level of investment. Uh, also, those of you who are interested in the environment, and all of us should be, uh, there is a huge difference in environmental impact. The labor-intensive agriculture essentially leaves the environment unchanged, whereas this kind of agriculture practiced in, uh, it's now a world center pivot irrigation is a worldwide technology, and in many places it draws so much water so fast and so much water is lost to evaporation that the underlying aquifer uh, is rapidly uh, being depleted. Uh, here are two center pivot photographs, and they too differ in capitalization. The one on the left is from Egypt. Uh, the one on the right is from Iowa. And the difference between them in the cost of the land would be dramatic. The market price of highly productive loam soil in one of the three or four richest agricultural zones in the world is much higher than in uh, the margin of the world's largest desert. Uh, here's another, I, I kind of got carried away with center pivot agriculture. Uh, here's another 
uh, slide of the same kind from the same source. And this is in southern France. Who's been to southern France? Pretty great, isn't it? And I have many reservations about French politics. Uh, but southern France is one of the nicest places I've ever been. And I, this summer, we'll meet a guy here in a month uh, named Paolo Zanoni, uh, who is a robber baron uh, Goldman Sachs partner. And he just built a villa overlooking Cannes in southern France. And I had to be taken away by security. Um, what's striking about this photograph in comparison with the others, what's the, what's the dramatic difference between this one and the Egyptian one and the Iowa one? Purple, that's not what I'm fishing for, guys. Okay, you gotta talk really, where's, do I have the mic? Here it is. Push the on button and it'll be on. All right, there's other things in the middle of the, like the green and purple circles. Okay, and what are the other things? I can't tell if that's houses or... Well, what are all these little polygons? Look at the, the right margin, for example. They are, take a guess. They're not soccer fields. Who wants to take a guess at this? Yes. Pasture. Okay, they might be pasture. What they really, what they are more generally, you have the, uh, we'll get better at this microphone thing as we go. Um, what they are is very small farms. They're farms where the meets and bounds trace back perhaps 800, 1,000, 1,200 years. And they were farms which worked economically when the world was less developed in capital-intensive agriculture, but they have been rendered marginal by the transformation of world agriculture. Now, the question for you, you ready for a, a policy question? Okay, your name is now Sarkozy. <laughs> and the question is, should we increase, let's suppose that 20% of these farms are failing a year, and we're already subsidizing them pretty heavily. Should we subsidize them more so that the rate at which they close down is diminished? Mr. Sarkozy, monsieur. Uh, I would say if you really want to effectively decrease the rate at which they're failing, you'd want to encourage consolidation. It looks like the problem here is a real fragmentation. Okay, the problem is fragmentation. That's a really good start. Now, uh, the person uh, immediately to your right is your political consultant. And 
she's going to tell you whether what you just said is going to wash in Lyon or not. How's that? The Sarkozy Consolidation Program. How's that going to play? Can you repeat the question, please? Okay. <laughs> uh, Sarkozy just said uh, these little fragments of land are an extremely inefficient way to do agriculture. And he, she was right on that point. Uh, and she goes on to say that we should try to capture the scale economies of big fields by consolidating agriculture. Now, you are a public official subject to election. Uh, what, how's that going to read for you, that statement, that we should announce the Sarkozy Agricultural Consolidation Plan? I don't think the public would like it, like the small farmers. The would small like farmers it. would hate it. And do the small farmers play a special role in the life and imagination of France? Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. So probably it won't happen. And France, this is, this is a characteristic fact about all the capitalist democracies, is that pressure groups play an enormously important role and the one book which is available for purchase at Labyrinth, but which isn't actually required, uh, is Christopher Buckley's Thank You for Smoking. How many of you have read this book? Pardon? Oh, oh the movie. How many of you have seen the movie? Okay. <laughs> Books. Uh, uh, it's all about the biases of pressure groups and public relations in the, capitalist, in the largest capitalist democracy, which is our own. I just couldn't resist throwing this one in. This is the Libyan desert. And uh, center pivot agriculture plus maybe something else that uh, uncle's observers from the sky found interesting. Okay, so a general theme here. Uh, strategy A, strategy B. Uh, strategy A is labor-intensive production. Strategy B is capital-intensive production. The single biggest story, I'm repeating myself here because it's such a big point, uh, in recent world history is the substitution of strategy B for strategy A and that happening on an extremely uneven basis. It's happening in a big way and fast some places and in a little way and slow other places and that generates an enormous vertical dimension to the world. So there are income ratios between households measured in the millions, millions to one. Uh, and that provides uh, some of the interest uh, in the functioning of capitalism, which brings us to the subject. Now, uh, comparing uh, labor-intensive, the red arrow, with capital-intensive, the blue arrow, 
we have here a very simple production function where labor expended is on the horizontal axis and units produced is on the vertical. Oh, for those of you who are actually taking this course, these slides, I posted them just before class. And so if you, you can just, you don't have to write this stuff down. Uh, and if you project differences in rates of return over long periods, here I've put 100 production cycles, and one curve is increasing at 1%, the red one. The other is increasing at 4% per cycle. And by the end of the period, there is a monstrous difference in the rate at which they are accumulating. And in actual, in actual fact, very small differences I've greatly overstated them in the production function here. The difference between 4% and 3%, or between 2.5% and 1%, uh, are enormously consequential when projected over time. And at a given moment in time, are enormously consequential from a competitive point of view. Because if you are not the low-cost producer, uh, the low-cost producer is in a position where if she has sufficient scale of operation, she can drive you out of business. Now, everything we've said so far uh, could be true of almost any economic system. Uh, I put the grass here to suggest Tang China. This was one of the great periods in Chinese cultural and economic history. Uh, ending more than a thousand years ago. And the, the use of capital, not necessarily in the highly intensive form, but the use of capital in this economic cycle we're talking about uh, was a perfectly normal practice uh, which the Tang Dynasty would have understood easily. And they were, by the way, uh, uh, just as inventive as we have been in the last couple of hundred years. What they didn't have was the ability to go to scale. Uh, or it could have been, in, as, in, as suggested in this Bruegel painting, uh, we could be thinking of Europe in the 15th century or the 16th century, uh, before the capitalist revolution, because there was always the reliance on capital lower levels of intensivity because there was less capital in total. And it could even have been, we could even be talking about an agricultural cooperative in the Soviet Union, which uh, used uh, capital uh, in the form of tractors and land and seed and so on but used it in a very different way than it is used in market economies. Two, uh, capitalism. Uh, let's switch now to the lower, the lower usage here. The, the, it is the use of accumulated wealth to produce more wealth. Marx makes a big point of this. Wealth commodity, wealth. 
WCW and sees this as, uh, as pathological, as a distortion of human values. And we'll talk through Marx uh, in uh, about a week or 10 days. Uh, the Great Man. How many of you have read as many as 10 pages of Marx's writing? Okay, where do we read Marx at Yale these days? Philosophy, Philosophy department. Where else? Directed studies. It, what does directed studies read of Marx? Communist manifesto. That's great. You're well prepared for this class because we're going to read it next week. Um, what would you say of Marx as a writer? First of all, he wrote in German. But who's got an editorial opinion about Marx's writing? Yes. You got to shout without the mic. Very talented writer. Very talented writer. Uh, I agree. A very smart guy. Um, if you were marking a, marking a Marx term paper up, what would you find fault with? A bit long-winded. Very windy. <laughs> and a little overwrought. Right? I mean, he really wants to hit you in the face five times with each thought. Um, but what we'll discover is interesting is that Marx, Marx uh, in the manifesto, Marx and Engels, look at capitalism in a way very similar to the way we look at it today. And they, they emphasize its enormous productive capacity. And they also emphasize that it is always on the edge of being out of control. Capitalism, as a word, comes into the English language in the middle of the 1800s. And it comes in because of Marx and people like Marx. Uh, it is a pejorative used to attack the existing economic system. Capitalism is seen not as a highly productive system, but as an unjust system. Uh, and, in a, and is criticized in other ways, which I'll tick off in a moment. Anybody recognize this fellow? Yes. It's J.P. Morgan, and uh, does anybody know who took this photograph? That's a little hard. Steichen, and it's a very famous photograph. What's famous about it? What is, what, what's striking about this image? Does he look friendly? Warm and fuzzy? No, and he wasn't. I mean, this was, this was a very hard-edged guy. Uh, and what seems to be in his left hand? It is a chair. It is the arm of a chair. Uh, but the reflection uh, makes it look like he's holding a dagger. And it was no accident. Uh, Steichen was not a fan. Um, and this has been used, uh, this photograph's been used thousands of times in a polemical way. Okay, capitalism as seen in the 19th century, a disease for which sci scientific socialism, that's Marx's term for Marx, 
uh, is the cure. And of course, there were 20 or 30 other brands of socialism that Marx regarded as unscientific. Uh, it is a method by which to steal uh, the labor, of, labor from the exploited masses. And the reasoning, which we'll review in 10 days' time, is that capital can never make money except by using either labor now or the accumulated fruit of labor from the past. And if capital ends up with a profit, that profit must be extracted from either living or fossilized labor. Uh, this is not a thought which I share. It is a system which undermines traditional society in all its forms and undermines traditional skill sets. And that's a perfectly true statement. And when it happens, it is very coercive. It is indeed a trademark of the way capitalism works. That a skill set which was uh, competitive and au courant in 1980 uh, may not command uh, as much as the minimum wage in 2009. And this is the kicker for Marx, is the claim that capitalism inevitably will destroy itself. It will undermine its own foundations and ultimately disappear. Uh, we'll evaluate that view. Oh my. Uh, this slide is cut off, all the, cut off the main part of the of what's here, so I'll have to remember it for you. Uh, capitalism is the name given to an economic system by its enemies. So point one, by its enemies. Point two, a system which relies heavily on the private use of capital. Heavily on the private use of capital combined with uh, the profit motive founded on self-interest or family interest. So that there are hundreds of variations on the capitalist system. But the essentials are private deployment of capital, uh, open acknowledgement of profit as a motive, and uh, a sympathetic understanding of self or household interest. Another frequent part of the package is a tolerance for innovation. And one of the characteristic facts about historical society is a resistance to innovation. And the temptation to resist change is always there. It is absolutely always there. And as people grow older, they grow more set in their ways and expect expectations and less tolerant of fresh innovation. Okay, this course. Uh, we're going to start with some excerpts from The Wealth of Nations. Uh, it is available on Classes V2, posted under Resources. Uh, how many of you have read at least, at least a chapter of Wealth of Nations. Okay, the rest of you are in for a treat. Uh, Smith is not only a great writer, but a great thinker. Uh, he is a much more complex thinker than we usually imagine him to be. He was not 
a uh, believer that it's just fine for the poor to starve uh, in the streets. He had actually very complicated views about that, which are broadly analogous to philosopher John Rawls and Rawls's difference principle about what inequalities are justified, namely those which redound ultimately in some way to the benefit of the least favored uh, uh, stratum in, in an economy. Uh, the manifesto, already mentioned, um, and in both cases we'll, um, we'll leave out a good bit. Uh, Smith is a very long book. I recommend to you the Bantam paperback, $7.95 of Smith, because it has wonderful little um, summaries of each paragraph in italics, uh, which allows speed reading, which is actually a very useful thing when a book would take a week to plow through in a careful, careful reading. And we'll focus on just three or four points there, three or four arguments in Smith, but they are uh, really powerful and important arguments. Uh, the Constitution of Liberty is by F.A. Hayek, and we'll just read two chapters. They'll be in a packet, which you'll get. Um, and Hayek is the arch uh, conservative, the market conservative, uh, from whom most of the conservative movement not concerned with social authority, but the libertarian side of American conservatism relies uh, primarily on Hayek, actually. Uh, Farewell to Alms, um, this book, uh, by a guy named Gregory Clark, is a book which says, capitalism more and better. Pour it on. And as capitalism is in, uh, increases its reach, the world will grow wealthier and better. It is a polemical work written by an economist. Uh, and you'll find things to argue with. Even if you more or less agree with him, you'll find many things to argue with him about. And that will be an important book uh, in the course. Uh, the Mystery of Capital. Uh, by Hernando de Soto is an argument about why the less developed countries in the world are less developed. And the gist of it is that formal and enforceable property rights are precondition to capital development. And it's, uh, it's a very powerful uh, piece of work. Uh, Richard Posner, a failure of Capitalism. Uh, Posner, anybody know who Posner is? Tell us, loud and clear. He's a judge. He's a judge. And he's a judge of what persuasion, would you say? He's a very conservative judge. Uh, teaches at the University of Chicago Law School. And he has written a very penetrating analysis of the current crisis. Uh, it is, I, I read maybe 20 books to pick one on this subject. And uh, this is the clearest and uh, most honest, I think. And he doesn't, he, do, he does no ideological distortion here that I can detect. It is just a penetrating and straightforward analysis of what happened. And um, for that reason, very useful. Uh, the Bottom Billion, 
by Paul Collier, who is a World Bank economist who teaches at Oxford. And uh, in this maps out a diagnosis and a strategy for using market mechanisms and capital, capital development to alleviate most of the world's poverty. Uh, finally, the white tiger, this is fiction. Uh, but there are times when fiction uh, is better at describing the real world than nonfiction. And this is a brutally uh, penetrating novel uh, written from the point of view of a very poor, very smart, uh, and in many ways flawed young man in South India. Um, it won the Man Booker Prize last year for uh, fiction. Uh, it is, uh, for our age, it is as good as Dickens and Zola uh, were for the 19th century. It's a, just a brilliant book. I couldn't put it down. Um, and I, I, 10 people told me I had to read it, and I kept shrugging my shoulders. Then when I started, I read it front to back uh, in one long day. And it is, if you want to understand why there are a billion or two billion people out there for whom capitalism looks not like uh, a powerful mechanism of production, but like an extremely coercive system, uh, the white tiger is uh, a great way to do that. Uh, and Chris Buckley's thank you for smoking is optional. Uh, we will also use the case method, and the case method occupies, occupies about a third of the course. And we will use uh, the ones in, in white are straightforward cases. The ones in gold will have the people in the room, or some of the people. Um, Polaroid is the story of uh, the land camera and a brilliant technology which ultimately crashed and burned. And it's the, the case is a Harvard Business School case about the attempt to get that business uh, through its crisis at the time uh, that it went broke. Goldman Sachs IPO, uh, terrifically, it's a, it's a good HBS case. And better yet, we'll have Paolo Zanoni with us uh, to tell the story from the inside uh, of the Goldman, uh, Goldman system. Uh, Wanda Rapachinsky is the story of uh, getting a business going in Poland just after the death of communism. Uh, a Yale-trained businesswoman who uh, created something called Agora SA, which is the largest publishing company in East Europe, and how she coped with the toxic environment, the toxic business environment uh, left over by communism. Um, Selco India is a microfinance story. Um, cardiothoracic systems is a tech story, and I'm going to have the dean of SOM come and do it as a business case with you, which means you're going to need to wear helmets. She is an aggressive cold caller. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to make two kinds of calls in this course. Cold calls are the kind of thing I did today. 
where, the, where you get no warning. Uh, and warm calls, I'll send you an email and say, heads up about. And um, in the second case, you really ought to have something to say. Um, and uh, they'll, they're, they're, uh, there's some of the fun in this stuff is the back and forth between uh, you and me and you and you. Um, the Enron case, uh, Jim Alexander is an important guy in this course. Jim, would you just stand up and wave? Um, Jim was, Jim is a, a, a good friend of mine um, who had a career in investment banking uh, and then at Enron. And he was chief financial officer of Enron Global Pipeline and Power. And he saw what was happening and got out. Um, he is referred to as the fly in the ointment in uh, Smartest Guys in the Room, which is uh, the popularized story of Enron's crash. Um, he then went on and uh, co-founded Spinnaker Exploration, whose operating principle was think what Enron would do and do the other. <laughs> and um, Spinnaker uh, became a public company uh, and was um, extremely successful. Uh, Medley Global Advisors, this is a case about gathering business intelligence and selling it for large pri high prices. Excuse my voice. Uh, Medley is another Yale-trained person. Uh, he founded the company, and the case is about his attempt to sell the company, uh, which he did. So he's selling a company that, for, which is eponymously his, and uh, uh, walking away, he actually sold it for 57 million bucks. And it's a no medley, medley story, and it's, he's a very interesting guy. Uh, and then maybe we'll talk about Maury's. I am chair of the workout committee which is trying to put Maury's back in business. And it turns out to be a really interesting, hard task. 